Hello, and welcome to episode 156 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz. How are you, Ian? I'm well, Jason. How are you, sir? Welcome back from France. Thank you. Thank you. It feels like a, a lifetime ago already, but here I am, back at home. You made it back safely, and all was well. I did. Yep. Been a long time since I've had like a connecting flight to somewhere. It was all all good. All good. No no issues. Well, long time listeners know your your proclivity for for nonstop flights yeah, at so all costs. Un- unfortunately, Delta's nonstop flight to Nice didn't start for like a week after my arrival. So I was very disappointed about that. You mean you didn't just extend your stay in Nice to to take a nonstop flight? I did not. And the connection back to the US from France at De Gaulle is actually fine. You just go through immigration, they stamp your boarding pass, you don't or your passport, you don't have to go through security. But that connection from the US to France sucked. Do not want to do that again. The what is it, like four hour walk through one of the terminals, then it's a twelve stop train ride, and then it's security and passport control and then it's another like 9 hour walk if if i remember correctly it was a lot yeah and security there is just a mess it just dumps you out into this hall with with lines that go every which way and like people splitting up the lines at random points and shuffling people to the left shuffling people to the right it's just chaos and everyone's saying my flight leaves in 4 minutes when really it leaves in like an hour and 4 minutes but they're lying <laughs> they want to get to the front but i made it even with like the hour and a half deicing delay but the way back was Smooth sailing. Was this a Delta A330neo? The way out to France was an A330neo on Delta. The way back was all Air France, an A319 to a 777-300ER. Ooh, that was nice. I, yeah. I, I, Air France's 777-300ERs is a is a nice. Yeah, I mean now a nice product. Yeah, you were in the forward cabin. I was. I was in the forward forward business class cabin, row four, two seats back from La Premiere, which looks uh, very nice up front. Yeah, that's but a, the that's upgrades, a whole uh, unlike your somewhat reasonable upgrade that they prompted you last year out of LA. Oh, that like, was that was a lie. Uh, yeah, that, that whole thing was a lie. That was a lie. But this upgrade, they wanted two thousand two hundred dollars or something like that to upgrade from business to first, which is. I no. mean, no. I mean, no, but I would have entertained it for about half a second. I entertained and it then, for half a second. Then, That's right. Yeah. And then reality would have come. Just come, disappointing come in that back. three of the four seats were empty, I think, for the flight. Like maybe offer a reasonable upgrade and then people will take you up on it. But no, man. They, one day. No. One day. I want one that day. curtain. One day. Not to press on two, two points of the subject, go. but where was your travel companion seated? A couple cabins back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So first you had to go through the galley, and then you had to go through another large business class cabin, and then you had to go through the premium economy cabin, and eventually uh, you'd end up in economy. Your significant other is significantly more understanding than mine. So. Yes, yes. Well, in, in this case, war, this was a work trip, so so work paid for my trip, and that was up front. It was very nice. I enjoyed it. For her birthday, she came out to to meet me after business was concluded out in Nice, which was great. But fares were not on the low end at that kind of last minute. So I think it was like $700 round trip in economy. So business class or even premium economy was not going to happen. But I, I did feel a little bad about being up front and she was down back. But at least even in basic economy, she was able to select a seat, a decent seat. <laughs> well, that's good. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she'll get you back eventually. Oh, I'm sure. Next time I'm offered an upgrade, maybe we'll, we'll switch off. 
There you go. Okay, to the business at hand. On Monday, the 21st of March, 2022, over 10 years of non-fatal commercial passenger traffic in China came to an end with the crash of China Eastern Airlines Flight 5735. The 737-800, not a MAX, was en route from Kunming to Guangzhou and crashed near Wuzhou. The aircraft was at 29,000 feet and rapidly descended from 29,100 feet, which is in China, the flight levels are assigned in meters. So the aircraft was assigned, yeah, 8,870 meters, which is, is roughly 29,100 feet. From there, in less than two minutes, it fell first to about 7,425 feet. And these are all from the calibrated altitude readings for the aircraft. So this is feet above mean sea level, fell to 7,425 feet, made a climb after reaching that altitude and climbed back up to 8,600 feet before then falling and impacting the ground. That all happened in two and a half minutes. Yeah, a lot happened in a very short span of time. And when I saw this, I saw it when I was first waking up in Europe, so well ahead of US time when most people were asleep, I took a look at the data, Ian, before you were awake. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, is what I'm looking at in this data real? Because we, we all know if you've ever played around with the app, coverage in China can get a little spotty, a little iffy at times. But this was very much initially, it looked like this can't possibly be real, that, that the line on the altitude graph just went straight down. But unfortunately, it, it seems like that is exactly what happened. Yeah. There's two things that, and about the, the data. And yes, it's real. Very, very uh, real and sadly so. But as is often the case, there there was more to the story when we processed the the granular data. So, that's right. So for longtime listeners, the data that's displayed on the website is displayed at a lower frequency. The positions are displayed at a lower frequency than the data is received from the aircraft. So the ADSB standard broadcasts at, at roughly once a second. There's two transponders, so we're getting basically a frame from the ADSB transponder every half a second or so in complete coverage. And and there's variation based on which receivers are receiving the, the signals. Are you know is there any impact to the to the signal by line of sight or or anything like that? But roughly speaking once or twice a second. That data is then processed and stored, but the the data on the website is updated at, at a slower frequency of once every five seconds or so, depending on the where the aircraft is. So if the aircraft is closer to the ground or is making a turn, you're going to see updates a bit more often because the rate of change in the data is higher. So to make things smoother on the website, we display fewer data points for aircraft to to not overload the website basically with that many data points times 15,000 16,000 aircraft being tracked at any one time the data is already overwhelming but this would make it even more so so 
we store all that data, the high frequency data that comes in. And then if there's a, a flight of interest or uh, something has happened in this case that we're, we're notified that there has been a crash, we can pull that higher frequency data. And over time, we've developed the ability to process data data over a longer period of time. There was a point a few years ago where the data would have been helpful, but without having the knowledge that something's happened, it was unfortunately not possible. But in this case, we found out not long after it happened and pulled the high-frequency data or the, the granular data that we have and process that. That's when we found the climb back from, from 74 to 74, 25 to, to 8,600 8, feet. Yeah, that piece of data was not displayed in the app when I was scrubbing through the timeline. That's a revelation that was revealed a couple hours after the, the news first hit, and it was kind of a shock to see that the aircraft was in such an extreme level of descent, and then actually looked like they got it maybe not under control, but they leveled off and actually managed to climb a bit, and then something happened again, and that was that was the end of that, unfortunately. At this point, we do not know what happened. Uh, we will not speculate on what happened. We will let the investigators investigate and come to their own conclusions over time. At this point, uh, the Chinese authorities are all over the scene, of course. They have thankfully already recovered one of the data recorders at the scene, which is suspected to be the cockpit voice recorder. They're still looking for the data recorder. Hopefully, they will find that soon. But at this point, just to re reiterate, we're not going to speculate. We're just going to say, here's the facts, here's what happened, but we do not yet know what happened or why it right. happened. We're fairly certain that it's the, the CVR that's been recorded. There's the cockpit voice recorder. There's the flight data recorder that records all of the, the inputs to the aircraft, the, what the aircraft is doing, what the pilots are asking the aircraft to do as far as the control inputs and things like that. And then there's the voice recorder, which is multiple microphones that record what is happening in the cockpit and in ambient noise as well. We'll put a, a link to the show notes to our previous conversation last April now with uh, Sean Payne from the NTSB, who is a recorder specialist at the NTSB, to get into a, a much deeper explanation of what happens when the investigators retrieve the cockpit voice recorder and, and what goes on from there. The NTSB, FAA, Boeing as the manufacturer, and CFM as the manufacturer of the of the engines are all parties to the investigation so they've they've designated representatives and and they'll be part of the investigation as you know part of international agreements as far as who has a, a stake in investigating a civil aviation accident yeah tougher these days ordinarily since China had had asked the the US NTSB for assistance in this investigation typically the NTSB would have probably by now already arrived but with things the way they are with COVID and restrictions and, and visa requirements. The NTSB did just comment that they are, they're working with the Department of State to address those issues with the Chinese government before any travel will be determined. So we were going back and forth earlier today wondering to what degree the NTSB is going to be able to provide assistance, whether it's going to be remotely from Washington or on the ground. And it seems like they do indeed want to get on the ground in China. 
but COVID restrictions are, are making that difficult. But hopefully they can work their way through that and not have something like a two-week quarantine period required in China because that would kind of really delay the, the process. But they're doing the best they can under the circumstances because entering China is probably the most difficult place in the world right now to, to need to access. Certainly one of, if one not of the most not difficult. The most, yeah. yeah. So just a few bits about the the aircraft itself. I, I made a point about you know five minutes ago when, when we first started the discussion that this is a 737-800. It is, it is not a, a 737-MAX. This particular aircraft was delivered to Chinese Eastern Airlines new in June of 2015. And like all 737-800s, it is powered by the CFM-56 engine, which is why CFM is involved in the investigation. So unfortunately, there has been a lot of, it's not even speculative, just blind knee-jerk reaction that, oh, it's a, it's a max or, you know, the MCAS and so No, that's, that's not what, that's not what's happening here. That's not what this aircraft is. It's not even a possibility in this particular, in this particular crash. So, so that's something to, to keep in mind. This is, it's a 737, but it's an entirely different aircraft. Much as the 737 MAX is an entirely different aircraft than the NG and it, and its problems. So yeah, that, that's one thing. The other thing is just some tracking information of note that I've been thinking about. One thing that you mentioned, Jason, at the top of the, the discussion was that tracking continuity of tracking can be an issue in China, which is certainly something that we're working probably as far as coverage goes, it's it's one of the things we're working on the most is trying to ensure that the the coverage there is it's a tough place to cover. It's a massive country. It's huge. The terrain is is varied and all sorts of other other challenges. The one thing I will say is that this particular area coverage is is actually quite good because of its proximity to to Guangzhou and Hong Kong. And this particular the 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 point where the incident portion of the flight occurred is near the top of descent for all other flights. I plotted the uh, for for all other basically all other MU five seven three five flights, um, so so I plotted the the past month's flights from Kunming to Guangzhou by Chinese Eastern on, on this particular route. It overlays with the the top of descent for that particular flight path. So that's just kind of one of the one of the tracking things that you know sifting through the data I, I, I found interesting. The other point is that I want to talk about vertical speed. Because a lot of the initial numbers, because it's such a big number, that was the focus of a lot of the initial reporting by media. But I want to take a step back and talk about what the vertical speed figure actually is for ADSB. If you compute the vertical speed after the fact, it does not match what we display. They're different numbers. Because after the fact, you know the time difference, you know the altitude difference, and you can compute that figure. What the vertical speed displayed on the site is the barrel rate of change that the aircraft is computing for that particular moment in time. So it's saying, all else being equal, if nothing changes, this is my vertical rate. And so that's where those numbers come from. When the aircraft is computing its position in space at that point in time, that's where that number comes from. It's not how fast an aircraft is is falling or climbing 
over a time period that, that is then known in the future. So the difference is that these numbers are what the aircraft is saying at that point in time. And it, it changes based on the parameters that the aircraft then, then interprets. So while these numbers are are big and while the post-computed numbers are also big, that's why they are different. So we've talked a little bit about that before, but I wanted to go over it again because it's worth repeating. Yeah, interesting. One more point also. In response to the, the, the crash of this aircraft, China Eastern had actually on, I believe its own accord, grounded the 737-800, of which it has over 100 frames. Actually, I didn't know it had that many, but proactively it removed the, the 738 from its active fleet. So it joins the 737 MAX 8 all three they took delivery of before that grounding. But interestingly, they did not ground the 737-700, which as far as I know is essentially the same aircraft, just a tiny bit shorter. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're being proactive until they, they understand exactly you know, what may have caused the crash. The other interesting thing is that Chinese aviation writ large is undertaking basically a, a safety audit of, of the entire commercial fleet. I'm not sure if that's more than doing something for the sake of doing something, but but it's interesting nonetheless to to see what may come of that. Yep. So at this point, we need to sit tight and, and wait for investigators to do their thing. And they've already had quite a number of press conferences that trickle out information. So we'll we'll keep apprised of the details and, and relay them as they come. Absolutely. Jason, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk about what is happening in the the Russian kind of updates on the Russian civil aviation sector, what Yasa is warning about. And then we can talk about some new planes, new routes, and what happened shortly after we recorded last week. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Last week, we talked about how Russia is taking a leased aircraft that, that were leased to Russian airlines by lessors not based in Russia and taking them off the Bermudan registry, some off the Irish registry, and placing them onto the Russian registry. Well, well now we have at least a number so far, and that number is bigger than I thought it would be. It is at least nearly 800 aircraft. That's that, a lot. That's a lot of aircraft. That's a few few billion dollars worth of airplanes. We talked about when we had John Oster on the show, we, we talked about what the rules and regulations and, and lessers and everything like that. And, and we were you know, chatting when we were setting up the show for this week and, and you and I were talking. And basically, the long and the short of it is that international law is all well and good until you want to break it. And then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Who's going to stop them? (laughs) Apparently nobody. Nobody. And the other kind of bit of who cares, I mean, it becomes academic, is that the pilot's licenses for pilots who were licensed to fly aircraft based on the Bermudan registration because of the the 83 beasts agreements, those licenses are all invalid now. Well, that's an interesting wrinkle, isn't it? But again, I don't know if that matters. Probably doesn't matter. You've got airlines, sanctioned airlines, flying stolen aircraft with pilots who don't have valid licenses. And no insurance or anything. And no insurance. Any, anything of that matter. 
But again, you can't service the aircraft. It doesn't matter. I guess my point is at some point, it's got to start mattering. At some point, but we're clearly not there yet. We're, we're not there yet. We're a long That's, way from that, apparently. We're a long way from it mattering. Yeah. It, which is just. I mean, it will yeah. matter once this whatever's going on hopefully ends soon and Russian airlines want to start operating to places that aren't Russia again. And I am I'm going to be really fascinated to see what happens in that case. So will other countries accept these aircraft? Can they re-register them? I it unfortunately doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon, but this is there are it's uncharted territory. There's, there are no answers to the questions being posed right now. And unfortunately, I mean, we keep getting further and further away from anything near charted territory. Yeah. I mean, we, I feel like with COVID, we we kind of beat unprecedented to death. Yes. We are, we are no so, longer so precedented. Yeah. I mean, very, very, very. We're in uncharted very, territory and that, that's a good so, segue into the next topic. It certainly is. So one of the issues that has been occurring with some regularity and is now a bit more kind of in focus is the global positioning navigation services. So so the the generic global navigation satellite system, uh, GNSS, though EASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, is warning basically anyone who flies or deals with flying, national authorities, air navigation service providers, airlines, anybody, that there are the possibility of jamming and, and spoofing of these position signals. And this is a problem for, for knowing where you are. It doesn't prevent safe flight. It's also nothing new. I mean, the consistent jamming or spoofing of satellite signals, uh, satellite position signals near Syria, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, the Eastern Mediterranean, also Eastern Turkey has is well known, has been going on for years. Pilots are are trained to to recognize this and, and mitigate it. However, EASA says now it's an issue near Kaliningrad, Eastern Finland, and and in the Black Sea in the current context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that is something that EASA wants airlines especially to be aware of. It's a certainly an area of concern because it could get worse and then you start to have problems not necessarily with the in-flight or, or in-route procedures, but you start to have serious problems when you start getting closer to the ground. And that's a number of the, the things that they warn about as far as you know, RNAV approach capability, RNP operations, things like that, or erroneous triggering of warnings like terrain warnings or things like that. So it's not something that has caused any issues that they have identified here as far as specific incidents, but it's something that they want operators to be very aware of. Yeah, not great. Not great at all. That's all I got. Not great. But at least there is warning and operators will be aware of such a possibility. Yes. Then, hey, we've got our own problems here in the US with our own military jamming GPS from time to time. So uh, this stuff happens. Yeah, it, it does. And and that's the thing. Pilots are aware of it. They are trained for it. They have ways to, to navigate without it. Does it still cause a lot of problems? Yes. yes. Another thing that is happening in Russia 
is because of the sanctions. And I bring this up just because it sounds very like from time to time when someone suggests that Boeing's restarted line or, or, or something like that. It sounds like one of those things that is a good idea academically until you actually think about it. And then you're like, well, I don't know if that's such a good idea. But Russia is considering dramatically increasing the production rate of the TU-214 because of sanctions imposed on Russia. And, and the TU-214 is a variant of the TU-204, which is 757-ish. Ish, yeah, for sure. As you alluded to, the aircraft is not actually out of production. It is just at a rate of 0.00 something per month. So the production line is still open, but this is not even in Russia, this is not a popular aircraft. There are like, let's see if I search for active, there are 17 of these frames possibly still in service right now. Really, none of them in in passenger service. There, there are freight and military frames operating. I think Cubana has a couple of them, but they're probably not operating as well. This one in North Korea. But this would be a sight to behold if they really did ramp up this production line and press them into service. But I mean, yeah, I, I guess a ramp up here would be kind of a bridge to the MC-21. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what the what the the competition there would be, or or the the overlap would be. But it's it's a interesting that they're even considering it as an option, and not just maybe uh, maybe if they run out of the 800 aircraft they've already stolen at some point. Uh, at some point, it's going to happen. I don't know, but this would be a, a turn of events that I don't think anyone would have predicted just uh, one month ago. No, we've. Yeah, the the list of events we would not have predicted one month ago is is very long at this point, and this one's certainly on it. Okay, let's leave Russia for at least this episode, and well, no, no, we, no, we can't do thing. that. We got yeah, one more topic. Can't do that. One yeah, more, one thing. more. This is an interesting marketing thing that Finnair has brought back, based on the Russian sanctions or, or avoiding Russian airspace. So Finnair's flight to Tokyo. The one that they've had from to Helsinki. add like three hours to? Yeah. So instead of flying over Russia, they're they're now going the polar route on most days. And to I hesitate to say celebrate because it, it's not really a celebration. Begrudgingly acknowledging. That's a good that's an excellent way to put it. Thank you. They have brought back their northern route diploma. So when Western Airlines were were not allowed to fly over the Soviet Union and, and over Russian airspace during the Cold War, they went over the polar route, and Finnair did, and, and well, many other airlines did as well. But Finnair specifically had its polar diploma, and they've brought that back. So if you're taking AY73 between Helsinki and Tokyo, you get a polar route diploma. That is pretty cool. It is. It is. It's pretty awesome to think that somebody inside of Finnair took this terrible situation and thought, you know what, let's make some good out of it and hand out this nice thing that we last did in the 1980s for our passengers to celebrate flying over the North Pole. Pretty cool. And yet again, something we would not have expected just 30 days ago. No, not, not at all. Speaking of new routes or the the official announcement of a route we knew was coming. Air New Zealand has put a date on the launch of its Auckland-New York flights 
and that date is September 17th. You will spend 17 hours in the aircraft on a 787, and it will be the route both ways will be tagged NZ1 and NZ2 because it is apparently now their their flagship service after stopping their their flight to London that via Los Angeles. It is a very long flight, but I'm happy that it is coming here to New York. That was a route that was announced pre-COVID, I think along with Chicago, that for yeah. obvious reasons that don't need explaining did not happen. But nice to see that they, they still think that there's demand to launch such a route this year even since a lot of people were speculating that international demand like that would not return anytime soon. But it's also nice that I think I I saw that New York is home to three of the top four world's longest routes. So that's a pretty nice distinction. Yeah. So that's what? Singapore. Singapore, The other Singapore. Yeah. Manila. If that one keeps operating, I think that one is not long for this world. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what are the, what are the other two? Well, it'll be this one, Auckland, Singapore, right. Manila. I don't remember what the other ones were, but I, I did read that it was three of the top four routes. Oh. Yeah. Well, neat. Yeah. I think we have two flights, two nonstops to Singapore right now, one from Newark, one from JFK until they – sort that situation out, or there was at some point. But we, we've got a lot of ultra long haul here. And we know Qantas wants to join the party with its uh, Project Sunrise at some point, but that won't be happening for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, interesting. So if you're looking for a a nonstop flight from, from New York to New Zealand, you're, you're in luck coming September. Maybe take the upgrade on that one. <laughs> you're going to end up on that uh, and, and you're going to have to sit in the back. Oh, God, no. Now. No. <laughs> Air Canada is is now the the soon to be proud owner of a whole bunch of A321 XLRs from a whole bunch of different sources which I found quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they'll be taking how many of these 26 A321 XLRs beginning in 2024. 15 of them will be from Airlease Corporation, five will be from Aircap, and six will be acquired directly from Airbus. So I thought that was quite interesting. Usually you see these deals come in one chunk from one particular source, but in this case, Air Canada just kind of went shopping. I wonder who they got the best deal from. Ooh, now that would be a good question that we'll never find the answer to. We will never know, but I I guess this is maybe not in response to, but a play after the failed bid for Air Transit, since the Air Transit does have 321 Neo LRs, not the XLR, but maybe this is a play to get into that long, thin transatlantic market that they, they really don't have the appropriate aircraft for right now. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they send them. That that also opens up a lot of Central American, South American routes as well that are going to be on those, you know, that long and lean, long and lean list that the the XLRs is really going to open. Up. I'm I'm really excited to see what airlines do with the XLR. Send them to LaGuardia. <laughs> well, they they don't have oh. the uh, the seven sixes anymore. We used to see those no. every now and then during uh, irregular operations. They they had canceled flights. They'd send yep. a wide body aircraft to scoop up all the stranded passengers, and they can't do that anymore. So it, it is not out of the realm of possibility that one of these would end up at Laguardia. That's fair. I will enjoy that. I, yeah, you take what you can get. So to to wrap things up, last week we talked about Comair, the South African airline, being 
grounded as a result of uh, certain safety lapses that the airline was was working to quickly correct and get back in the air. Jason, did you time in minutes how long it took for us to hit the stop button on the recording before the airline was flying again? It or may did have we been second, like an hour. I, I don't okay. even know if we got to minutes. So yeah, if you listen to the podcast last week and you're like, "I they're flying," I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, it, that that's one of those things that we where we talked about it and then it was completely different by the time the podcast came out. But hopefully, a, a few things happen by the time this episode of the podcast comes out. One of those things is that they found the the flight data recorder from the Chinese 737. And we know a little bit more about where the investigation uh, or how the investigation will take shape and who will be participating. So we will certainly, if those things happen, talk about them on next week's episode. This has been episode 156 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. 